today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, episode number 14, Lovett's Grove. Last time, we talked about the problems between James and Ellen White and some of the believers in Waukon, Iowa, namely J.N. Andrews' dad, and we're all glad that that got resolved, aren't we? Oh, and we talked about John Loughborough's travels, how he helped build the Second Adventist Meeting House in Battle Creek, and how the review upgraded to the mid-19th century by getting a steam press. And let's not forget the financial crunch America was in at the time, which led us to prematurely foreshadow Sister Betsy, the plan to financially support the preachers, which we will deal with next time following another cryptic and completely interesting cliffhanger. Okay, so here we are at the dawn of 1858. One of the things you should have picked up on so far is how increasingly confident the Sabbatarian Adventist movement was. When you read the review in the late 1850s, you see all the things we've talked about, requests for money, notices of upcoming meetings, traveling schedules, and theological works, yes, all of that, but you also can't help notice the tone of joyful confidence that these Adventists really were reforming the Christian world with great success. Of course, this wasn't on a huge scale, but we see 20 people baptized here and 10 people baptized there, and it's just a constant, consistent success. These weren't the days of deep soul-searching and disappointment, trying to figure out what had happened in 1844. These men and women had answers for that, and for many other things, answers that other former Millerites readily wanted to hear. And this confidence, this conviction, was typified by a curious little allegory that appeared in the January 5, 1858 edition of the Review, written by a man named Joseph Clark. The article was a conversation between a deacon named Cognitus and his pastor, the wonderfully named Theophilus Expediency D.D. The D.D. stands for Doctor of Divinity. And Cognitus in Latin simply refers to someone sharing a common ancestor, a way of saying we're related. So it seems that the author of this allegory, Joseph Clark, wanted us to see this deacon as a common man. It's a little easier to understand Theophilus Expediency, which basically means a lover of God when it's convenient, and he has this impressive degree, so he must know what he's talking about, right? So the allegory begins with the deacon asking the pastor for advice about his son, who has recently begun to question their orthodox beliefs. At first, the pastor is dismissive, asking if he's even old enough to think for himself, and questioning the father on whether he properly isolates him from any contact with people of different views. The deacon did all of these things, but the son somehow got it in his mind that Saturday was the Sabbath. So the deacon told him to go read the Bible, which the son did, and of course came away more convinced about the Sabbath. This all distressed his father, the deacon, who at last told him that Sunday is Sabbath because the church says so. The solution this pastor urged the deacon to do was to send the boy to school to learn Virgil and Homer and the classics. The pastor says, This is the beauty of college training. 
it fits the mind to appreciate such evidences as the church fathers. He goes on to say that he cannot say exactly how the sun is wrong, only that it takes, quote, labor, time, and research to set these matters in their proper light, end quote. In other words, your son is wrong, but he needs a college education for us to begin to prove him wrong, which, of course, sounds really, really absurd to the Sabbatarian Adventists. Joseph Clark's allegory highlights the confidence the Sabbatarian Adventists felt about their message. Even though we've been talking lately about the many challenges that the Sabbatarian Adventists faced, they were still growing at a fast pace. And they had two things really going for them. A simple, empowering message and an urgent mission. The message was simple because they believed that if other Christians would just read their Bibles more carefully, they would end up being Sabbatarian Adventists too. Now that might seem a bit arrogant, but keep in mind that they had plenty of evidence for this conclusion. Joseph Clark, the author of the article, was a Seventh-day Baptist before he joined on. And of course we all know that Ellen White was a Methodist, James White was from the Christian Connection, Uriah Smith had more or less been an agnostic, John Loughborough had been an Advent Christian, and on and on. Remember, these Sabbatarian Adventists didn't think of themselves as just another denomination, but a movement that encompassed people from all denominations. They were, in a sense, trans-denominational. So becoming a Sabbatarian Adventist was something fresh, something that seemed destined to avoid the ruts of tribal denominational affiliations. It was a movement of people coming from other movements that had long ago stopped well, moving. These Adventists boldly proclaimed that these former Baptists and Methodists and Connectionists, or whatever you want to call them, had all studied the Bible for themselves and come to the same conclusions. The only way you could avoid them, as Clark's allegory suggests, was by allowing prejudices or traditions or non-biblical authorities to get in the way. The deacon's boy was only 14, and he had come to the truth by simply reading his Bible. And how many times had Joseph Bates just opened up the Bible in someone's home, and by the time he left, which was sometimes many hours later, they would be convinced? We might say that it's not as simple as all that. Lots of people read the Bible and come to different conclusions, obviously. But the early Adventists insisted that if we could remove our biases and really apply ourselves, we can find the truth together. That's a confident stand to take. And it was empowering because, as the allegory implies, it had this inherent hope, this inherent belief that every common person could come to this truth themselves that you didn't need a college degree, that you didn't need some fancy degree behind your name, that if you were to just open up the Bible, read for yourself, apply it, compare Scripture with Scripture, that you could do this too. Not only did they have a clear, simple message, but they had an urgent mission, to prepare people for Jesus' soon return. Let's get serious, people. No more playing church. Jesus could come at any time. Don't you want to be ready? Things like that really energized the believers to sacrifice their money, to sacrifice future plans and endeavors and comforts in order to buy into this mission. 
the founders of the church really believed that Jesus could come in their lifetime, and it changed the way they lived. It changed their priorities, and it changed how they spent their money. They achieved something like what the early church had in the book of Acts, where people sold themselves out for the cause. That's only really possible when you have this sense of urgency. Can you imagine how this was an exciting and new way to live? It gave purpose to life. Time was suddenly very, very valuable, and it put everything else in life in its proper perspective. All of this was put into perspective a few months into 1858, when the movement finally entered Ohio. It's kind of been a weird thing that Indiana, Michigan, Wisconsin, and even Iowa should have an Adventist presence before Ohio, but that's just how it went. J.N. Andrews had traveled through the state years before, but nothing ever really seemed to take root there. As early as 1851, when the review was headquartered in Paris, Maine, a brother case reported that, quote, the field is open wide in Ohio and the laborers few, end quote. Well, brother case, here come Ellen and James White, a few years later. And it was at this meeting in Ohio that one of the most monumental visions of Ellen White's prophetic career occurred. Now, first let's talk about where there was. It was a bit north of where Bowling Green is now, about 15 to 20 minutes south of Toledo. By the side of the road, there's a little clump of trees and very little else. And at this spot you'll find an Ohio historical marker, a little sign on the side of the road, which commemorates the first Seventh-day Adventist church built in Ohio. A man named G.W. Holt had converted about 30 to 40 people in two weeks there, and the believers started meeting in a schoolhouse in Lovett's Grove. That's what that little clump of trees was all about. A month later, James and Ellen showed up to see how everyone was doing. James's report was good. He wrote in the review the next week that... Quote, there is much wealth among the brethren, which we fear will drown many of them in perdition. You'd think that James would be excited that people with money were joining the movement, but his first concern was what that wealth might do to their souls. James was asked to do a funeral while he was there, and he spoke for a little while before turning the microphone, so to speak, over to his wife, Ellen, because that's just how they tag-team to things these days. And during Ellen's sermon, she went into vision for two hours. It was a little awkward because, you know, they had this dead guy in a casket ready to be buried and really just didn't know how to proceed. So James and the family and the friends of the deceased left for the cemetery while Ellen stayed behind to relate the vision to all who wanted to hear. Because really, what else were you going to do? Now sadly, we don't have a very graphic account of what she saw. When she related the vision to a general conference meeting in Battle Creek in late May that year, James wrote that her account, quote, abounded in startling facts and vivid descriptions, end quote. Yeah, but they just didn't write down those vivid descriptions. The vision itself is what Adventists today call the Great Controversy vision. The Great Controversy is the term Adventists use to describe the cosmic meta-narrative or overarching story, within which everything else fits. It's the story that begins with the fall of Lucifer and concludes with a new heavens and a new earth. 
In other words, it's the really, really big story the Bible is telling us. Adventists call this story the Great Controversy as a kind of shorthand. The full title of a book that was going to appear is The Great Controversy Between Christ and Satan, which is how Adventists view this meta-narrative. So everything you read about in the Bible or happens in history somehow fits into this much larger controversy between Christ and Satan. Think of a puzzle. The great controversy is like getting all of the border pieces, the ones on the edge, snapped together. It serves as a frame for everything else. It keeps all of these doctrines and beliefs in perspective. The gist of the great controversy is that Lucifer coveted God's throne, slandered his character, fell into sin, and dragged mankind down with him. He made these claims against God's character, and so what follows in the Bible is how God clears his name while restoring creation to its state before sin. It's a very practical concern. How does God fix all of this? Why did it happen to begin with? What's at stake here? Is Satan right? Is following God really impossible? Is he really love? Or is God just as selfish as the rest of us? We see some of these questions played out in Satan's temptations of Jesus, where he tries to draw Jesus down the same path which he, Satan, took long ago. This theme is the golden thread that runs through every book of the Bible. It unites Old Testament and New, and shows us God's grand plan for humanity. Now, this great controversy theme didn't originate with this vision. But it was this vision that put it all together for Sabbatarian Adventists. This was a unique worldview that had implications for every other aspect of their beliefs. For instance, when you understand that God's contest with Satan isn't just a military war, but a war of ideas, that is, is God really love, and is love really the best way to run the universe? Is selfishness a viable option? Is God's way really constraining, ruining our fun, and infringing upon our autonomy? Does it hold us back, as Satan suggests in the Garden of Eden? After all, we see atheists saying very similar things today. So when we see Jesus healing and forgiving and saying things like, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, then we understand the larger import of his mission, which was to address Satan's accusations about God. So he came and began putting the world together again, repairing broken people, releasing people from the weight of sin, and setting the record straight by showing people who God is, what love looks like in a sinful world. You have heard it said, Jesus says over and over during the Sermon on the Mount, but I say to you this thing or that thing. Jesus' life, therefore, is just as important as his death. It's like a window being opened and fresh air being released into a stale room. There's a different way to live than the cycle of violence and selfishness. God isn't the person Satan would have us believe he is. He's not cruel, arbitrary, distant, and unconcerned. He's with us. He's for us. He wants to rebuild what we broke and forgive our sins. The great controversy theme helps put everything in perspective. It helps us see the big picture when we're reading through the Bible. Of course, Ellen White had to write all this down, so she began to work on a book she called, wait for it, The Great Controversy. The title is kind of an interesting tale, 
because it didn't actually end up being called that. Well, I mean, it sort of did. There was actually a book already called The Great Controversy Between God and Man, written by H.L. Hastings and published by The Review, and Uriah Smith dutifully informed the author that his title was about to be hijacked. This was all, by the way, perfectly appropriate, as book titles then and now are not copywritten. Its full title would later become Spiritual Gifts, Volume 1, The Great Controversy Between Christ and His Angels and Satan and His Angels. Catchy, huh? The book by Hastings was not at all similar to Ellen's, and we don't have any evidence that he was bothered by this. Ellen White's key title change showed that the issue wasn't between God and humanity, but between God and Satan. God isn't against us, per se. Humanity, by implication, is caught up in between, and we all must choose which side we want to fight on. Since The Great Controversy is probably the best-known book Ellen White ever wrote, let's take a minute and talk about its strange evolution. Adventists might be surprised to learn that the book was written in 1858, because they're probably more familiar with the 1888 and 1911 editions. The 1858 edition was small. It was basically a survey of the Bible story from the fall of Satan to the destruction of the wicked in Revelation, about 150 pages in total. You can read it in the back of early writings, or if you can find a copy of Spiritual Gifts, Volume 1. What you need to understand about the four volumes that made up the Spiritual Gifts set is that they were essentially other books in an early form. For instance, the first volume, what we've been talking about as the Great Controversy, uh, was that, but the second volume eventually was combined with Volume 1 and some other things Ellen White wrote in the 1850s to become early writings. Volume 3 of Spiritual Gifts eventually led to Patriarchs and Prophets. Volume 4 was more of a mishmash, which was mostly picked up where Volume 3 left off, but also talked about health, dress, and various other topics she thought the movement needed to hear. All four volumes were published between 1858 and 1864. The kernel of spiritual gifts was Ellen White's retelling of the Bible story. The first volume, the uh, Great Controversy part, was a survey of the entire Bible. But then volume 3 and 4 started talking in more depth about Moses and Abraham and King David and all of that. So by 1870, she began a new four-volume series that focused exclusively on providing a more detailed, more consistent narration of the Bible story called The Spirit of Prophecy. So the first four-volume series was called Spiritual Gifts, and the second one is called The Spirit of Prophecy. Got it? The first volume of The Spirit of Prophecy focused on Mount Sinai to the building of Solomon's temple. Volume 2 dealt with Jesus' life, while Volume 3 dealt with Jesus' death and ended with the death of Peter and Paul. Then Volume 4 came, which once again traced history from the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, through the Reformation in 1844, and to the earth made new at the end of time. Oh, but it doesn't end there, my friends, because four years after she finished The Spirit of Prophecy, which was in 1888, Ellen White updated and expanded it yet again. The reason is because the printer printed 50,000 copies of this Great Controversy book, the fourth volume of the series, in three years, and the print type was completely worn out 
and had to be reset. So Ellen White reasoned that she might as well make some changes. And the reality is that both spiritual gifts and the spirit of prophecy were written for Adventists. But volume four of the spirit of prophecy, that great controversy volume, had found its way into the hands of a lot of non-Adventists. So Ellen White changed the tone of the book a bit, trying to get rid of a lot of the insider language and first-person view so non-Adventists would be better able to accept it. Since she was in Europe at the time, she expanded the section on the Reformation and added a few more chapters. She also had access to better historical records and used a wider variety of sources. The Great Controversy was updated one final time in 1911, which largely made the book more professional. Once again, the reason was because the printing plates had worn down again. By then, the four-volume Spirit of Prophecy series had become the five-volume Conflict of the Ages series. The Great Controversy was the fifth and last volume, and it's remained that way to this day. Ellen didn't plan on updating the book in 1911, but took the time to do so, because why not? When she first wrote it over 50 years ago, she didn't bother to give credit to her sources because that just wasn't done then. It wasn't really that important. By 1911, it was seen as important to do so, and so she did. She also softened her tone towards Catholics to avoid needlessly offending them when she talked about history. I know all of this is kind of complicated to follow when you're just listening to a podcast, but it's kind of fascinating to see the development of Ellen White's thought over 50 years. So if you're an Adventist or just have a great controversy at home lying around, you probably have a 1911 version. But this was a book that evolved through Ellen White's life. If somehow she lived until today, what would the book look like now? Would it be part of some hundred-volume set because she never stopped expanding and refining the basic goal of providing a prophetic narrative of the great controversy theme through scripture and history? As she refined it in 1911 to meet the changing culture, how would she refine it in the 21st century to meet our culture? This book was constantly updated, and we can only imagine what she would have written if somehow that would have kept happening. Now, the title, Great Controversy, originally applied to the whole idea of following that golden thread through Scripture, even if today only, a, only the fifth volume of the Conflict of the Ages series actually bears the title. In 1858, the Great Controversy consisted of less than 50,000 words. By the fourth and final revision in 1911, it had nearly 250,000. This Conflict of the Ages series, all five volumes that trace the Great Controversy theme from the fall of Satan to the new earth, is Ellen White's magnum opus. It's an amazing legacy, with some 3,600 handwritten pages. It's easy enough to get a copy of The Great Controversy for $10 or $15 today. But if you were alive in 1858 and, get, and could get a first edition, you could have bought it for $0.50. Cents. That's a bargain. Just add it to your list of things to do when you get a time machine. One of the more colorful people to enter the movement at this time was a man by the name of Michael Tchaikovsky. Tchaikovsky was a Polish Catholic priest, except being a priest wasn't so great. While he was studying, one priest got so drunk, and I kid you not, this is a true story, one priest got so drunk that he couldn't stop himself from burning to death. 
Now, I don't know how that happened or how that's possible or what in the world he was doing, but that happened. And it was also apparently common in the area where Tchaikovsky lived in Poland for priests to be arrested. And then another priest hung himself in the pulpit of the church. And it was in this atmosphere that Tchaikovsky finished his training in 1843 and was credentialed as a priest. A few years later, he went to Rome and met the Pope. That meeting didn't go very well. And a cardinal ended up suggesting to Tchaikovsky that he serve in Jerusalem for six years, hearing the pleas of wealthy Poles making a pilgrimage to the holy city. And after that, he would be made a bishop. But after seeing the Pope's lavish lifestyle, he became disillusioned and moved to Paris to begin reading his Bible. In 1850, he tended his resignation and went to America. In 1851, he became a Baptist in New York, working among a French-Canadian population there. After attending Sabbatarian Adventist meetings in 1856 and 57, he became a Sabbatarian Adventist. He desperately wanted to return to Europe and work there, but the Young Movement wouldn't or couldn't send him. Andrews would explain years later that while they respected Tchaikovsky, they didn't think he was responsible enough with money to handle being on the continent by himself as the sole representative of the Sabbatarian Adventist movement. They hoped that he would spend more time in America and grow a little before being the first Sabbatarian Adventist missionary. Undeterred, Tchaikovsky left on his own in 1864, starting a paper in Switzerland. How did he get there, you ask? By asking for money from first-day Adventists, which felt a little strange to their Sabbath-keeping cousins. He also went to England, Italy, Germany, Austria, Hungary, and even planted the first Sabbatarian Adventist church in Romania. All the while, he preached the soon coming of Jesus, which the first-day Adventists were paying him to do. But then he also added that bit about the Sabbath, which I'm positive they would have very much disapproved of. He was more or less an unsanctioned, undercover agent. Tchaikovsky was an absolutely fascinating man. He was completely unlike the normal type of people who joined the Sabbatarian Adventists. He wasn't a former Millerite. He had only been a Protestant for a few years. So here you had a man who not only used to be a Catholic priest, who was from a completely foreign culture and country, but who had met the Pope, who had been offered a place in Jerusalem. The problem with Tchaikovsky was that he was a loose cannon, though. He isn't considered the movement's first missionary because they never sent him. He just went off on his own. He seldom consulted with the group. He just did what he thought he had to do. When he was with the Baptists, he worked among the French Canadians in New York. When he was with the Sabbatarian Adventists, he worked among the French Canadians in New York. And when the first day Adventists started sponsoring him, he just did what he had to do to get done with what he wanted to get done and go to Europe. And, you know, his own thing was pretty good. When the church sent Jan Andrews as its first official missionary to Europe some years later, Andrews found 71 believers in Switzerland. And yet, even that was kind of incidental. 
Because as Tchaikovsky kept his affiliation with the Sabbatarian Adventists on the down low, so he wouldn't lose his funding with the first-day Adventists, he really, really didn't tell the believers he was converting that they were attached to any larger group of Sabbatarian Adventists. The funny thing is, is that one of the Swiss believers that he had introduced to the truth found a copy of the review in a chapel that Tchaikovsky had left there and read it and said, oh my goodness, there's more people like us in America. There's a lot of them. Why did he never tell us about this? And this Swiss man proceeded to contact Uriah Smith to find out more about what's going on. If the first-day Adventists were surprised to discover that Tchaikovsky was preaching the Sabbath behind their backs, which they did find out, the seventh-day Adventists were perhaps more surprised to discover him preaching the Sabbath at all. In 1873, J.N. Andrews wrote to the Review to explain what had happened. While Tchaikovsky was in New York, he wrote constantly to the Review asking for money and reporting on his work. But when he went to Europe, he was off the grid. His name doesn't appear in the review at all for more than a decade. Andrews wrote that, quote, It was supposed by ourselves at the time that he was thus sent forth to Europe that he had virtually renounced the seventh day as the Sabbath, end quote. From their perspective, they just saw this guy get money from the first day Adventists and take off. He didn't tell them what his plan was. He didn't keep any connections going with them. So they just assumed he left the church. When Tchaikovsky ran to the first-day Adventist for funding, Andrews just assumed that he had left the movement. Tchaikovsky wanted, as Andrews put it, absolute independence from the movement. He even resented it when the church later tried to pay the mortgage debts of his ministry in Switzerland on the condition that his property be held by the Swiss believers and not by him personally because he was just not that great with the money. He seemed also to blame the church for alerting the first-day Adventists and ruining his source of income. But, through it all, he remained a Sabbatarian Adventist to the end. So yeah, a fascinating, strange character. Not at all a team player. But boy, did he do exceptional work across Europe. We can be glad that the Swiss believers contacted America, or all of his work might have been in vain. If the Seventh-day Adventist Church had never been around to unite and support the believers in Europe, if they have never found out that they even existed, then those believers might have drifted in another direction. His legacy might have been a little different in that case. But, hey, it all worked out in the end. Let's finish up this week where we finished off last time. Systematic Benevolence, a.k.a. the plan to pay the preachers. 1858 was the year in which they finally decided something had to be done and it needed to be done soon. James wrote in April that many preachers were discouraged and counseled them to let church members do more work. We mentioned last time that Ellen White told James to summon J.N. Andrews to study out the problem in the March of 1858. And yeah, about that. I was quoting Loughborough for that information, and he was writing this way, way, way back in 1910. Well, it turns out that this actually happened in the January of 1859, so I'm sorry for the slip-out. I didn't think it sounded right, but I had Loughborough open on my desk at the time, and, well, if you can forgive him, I hope you can forgive me as well. 
Nothing happened in 1858 except that James and the other preachers stirred up the believers to the immense need to pay preachers. We had finally gotten to a point where the work was having a hard time going forward and something had to be done. The financial crunch that was going on in the country was hurting everybody. Something had to be done. Something would be done. And we'll talk about it next time. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus history content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Avenus History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So... If you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>